Welcome to the Retail Focus Podcast, a weekly collection of news, interviews, and information from the world of retail. Welcome to this edition of the Retail Focus Podcast. I'm Trent Kling. Coming up on this week's episode, we will be joined by Whitney Livingston, the president and COO of Centennial. We will discuss with her mixed-use developments. They are becoming in vogue, especially as it pertains to retail. We'll talk to her about determining the correct location for a redevelopment and also talk to her about how exactly it is determined the mix in mixed use in particular developments. We'll also talk about seasonal retail, earnings report from Walgreens, and big news by way of Bed Bath & Beyond. A quick reminder that you can check us out on social media at Retail Podcast on both Instagram and Twitter. Also, this week's podcast is brought to you by BAMS. You can visit BAMS.com slash paywell today to start saving on payment processing. So seasonal sales will lead our show this week, by the way, coming to you from a hotel room in Utah. But we're going to talk a little bit about fireworks retailers. This is an area of retail that, of course, intrigues us year after year because it is, along with Christmas, some of the most unique seasonal selling that you'll see out there. Halloween you can throw certainly into the conversation too. Fireworks retailers might not have the same shortages that they experienced over the last couple of years, but prices for the explosives are still exploding. As a quick primer for those that might be uninitiated in terms of fireworks retail, some fireworks stores are in operation year-round where they're allowed, but most stands or brick-and-mortar locations are only open seasonally. Despite an increase of late, and by of late I mean over the last 10 to 20 years, in owned brick-and-mortar locations, many fireworks sales still take place in otherwise vacant parking lots rented out by distributors. These stands are sometimes operated by employees of the distributors or sometimes by nonprofits who do fundraising there or sometimes by seasonal employees who earn a cut of overall sales. And in some cases, these firework stands have been run every year around July 4th and sometimes New Year's by families for generations. A USA Today article that came out this week notes that it may be largely supply chain to blame for the increased prices to consumers. Basically, the fireworks industry is experiencing the same core input increases as other industries, but just to a greater extent. Labor costs to manufacture and sell are higher year over year. Distribution costs are higher in part due to labor costs, in part due to fuel, and in part due to low availability. As an example, containers from China cost over four times more to transport today versus 2019 pre-pandemic. And then raw materials costs have also increased. All of this has led to an estimated 35% increase year over year in the cost of products in some areas. Phantom Fireworks, which is a major fireworks distributor in the United States, they actually call themselves the number one fireworks retailer in the United States, had their CEO Bruce Zoldan as being quoted as saying their prices have actually doubled to the public since 2019. They've increased 20 to 30% in the past year. A superior fireworks spokesperson was also quoted as noting the year-over-year price hike, both on the retail and wholesale side, is about 40% for them. So overall, you're looking at 
anywhere between 20 and 40% that price increase that's passed along to the consumer. And one report out of South Bend, Indiana, actually had prices up about 50% at those retail locations there. One other area that's going up for these retailers is insurance. And this actually is a good topic to talk about for all retailers and gives us an excuse to talk about it briefly. Obvious need for fireworks retail here is insurance, given that they're dealing with highly flammable and explosive materials. But I think insurance is something that has impacted all retailers really over the last couple of years. Looking back at ICSC last month in my conversations with landlords and property management firms, they were discussing insurance prices going up usually by 10 to 20% year over year. And insurance companies, part of the reason they're raising the prices, it's not just because they can get away with it, but it's because they're looking at higher replacement costs if something does go wrong. We've talked a lot on this show about higher costs of construction, how that's restrained retail developments and new developments in the retail landscape. Well, insurance companies are looking at that same thing, saying, well, hey, if it costs more to build a new building here in 2022, we need to be charging more on the insurance front in case something does go wrong, in case we do have to pay the replacement cost of a building. We need to charge more and cover our costs on that end of it. In any case, the majority of the time, insurance costs are passed along to retailers who are now bearing the brunt of cost increases. This includes fireworks retailers, and those increases are felt very acutely by seasonal retail, in particular with fireworks. As I mentioned, you're dealing with explosives, but they usually pay more on a percentage of revenue basis than their year-round retail cousins as a result of those premiums being a little bit higher. One other facet that's to the negative for fireworks retailers this year is not all product is arriving on time or even on par with pre-pandemic. It is better than last year, though. Retailers and wholesalers are reporting about 75 to 80% of their product arriving on time. That's up from around 50% over the last two years. So good jump over 2021, but still things aren't quite running at full throat here in the fireworks landscape. So all these price increases, all of these setbacks, what have they done to buying habits. Well, it seems like in the majority of areas that are out there, early returns are kind of underwhelming at this point. Some tents in Indiana, as I mentioned, in Michigan, elsewhere in the Midwest, reporting sales down usually in the teens year over year, depending on which media outlet you look at and which fireworks stand was interviewed. This comes despite that alleviation in the supply chain where more is available to those individual firework stands this year than has been available in years past. But people seem to be hesitant to pay increased prices for every firework this year, especially if you're looking at prices going up 40 to 50%. And we know, of course, and we've talked about it, certain consumers, not all households, but certain consumers have been adversely affected by things like grocery and general merchandise inflation as well. The increased prices have also affected some municipalities and some private fireworks shows. So if funds to run a fireworks show, whether they be private or public, they haven't scaled up to match the cost of the show, which now could be around 40% higher than it was a year ago. Those fireworks shows get canceled and cancellations may also prove a slight hit to retailers and wholesalers. They certainly were over the last two years. Only it was COVID-related reasons that were cited for cancellations 
of these shows. But some markets in the south, such as San Antonio, are expecting increased sales overall, and that comes per KSAT-TV down in San Antonio. And there is some good news. We do want to finish on good news for fireworks retailers this year. After an early summer dotted with drought throughout much of the western part of the country, rains are expected in much of the Mountain West over the next week or so. They've already started where I'm at in Utah. They were starting in Colorado, certainly, before I left that state. This has caused some cities and counties to lift bans, including a number of those in Texas where fireworks sales are usually pretty brisk. Those had been particularly drought-affected, and they're starting to relieve those bans for the 4th of July. So maybe some good news coming just before the holiday for those retailers in those areas. Moving on there from our yearly look at fireworks retail and that type of seasonal retail, we wanted to provide a quick check-in on Walgreens. They revealed their most recent earnings this week. This would be for their fiscal third quarter. Of course, much of Walgreens' recent news has been centered around their attempted sale or spin-off of their boots division. This was put on hold early this week. The company issued a press release back on June 28th saying that they would actually retain their, and I quote, successful boots business. But in this story, we'll focus just briefly on American store sales. U.S. retail comps were up 1.4%, which for them is an encouraging sign. Excluding tobacco, sales were up 2.4%. Their digital sales continued to grow as well. Digital comps for Walgreens were up 25% in the United States. It's good for a 120% two-year stack increase. Overall retail sales were up 1% in the U.S. They trailed comps due to, of course, those store closures that have been mentioned off and on again when it comes to Walgreens in the U.S., many of them, of course, coming after the acquisition of Rite Aid stores. Specific categories of sales success for Walgreens included health and wellness, Health and wellness was actually up 7.9% year-over-year with sales of at-home COVID tests and also cough and cold medication over-the-counter helping out. Personal care products were up 2.6%. On the other side of things, beauty was down just slightly, 0.4%. This came as a little bit of a surprise as people continue to get out of the house a little bit more than they were doing a year ago. Consumables were down 1.9%. Consumables, of course, lapped good sales from the first two years of the pandemic for Walgreens. And also, you factor in the fact that tobacco is included in this category. You can see where the fall came from. Part of the comp sales increase for Walgreens was credited and driven by their initiative to return around 3,000 stores in the U.S. to their pre-pandemic hours during the quarter. Retail-wide, of course, during the pandemic, hours were slashed. Businesses were only open until 7 or 8 p.m. in certain circumstances. Slowly, we started to see hours being extended, eventually returning to normal in most of general merchandise and grocery, but retail pharmacy has been even slower than those sectors to return to those early and late hours. I was in a city recently where all the Walgreens stores closed at 8 p.m. However, Walgreens is beginning to open those stores up for longer hours, meaning, of course, more potential for sales during those off hours for those particular locations. Now, while their overall gross margin did take a hit from around 21% last year to 20.2% this year, specific to U.S. retail, gross margin actually increased as a percentage of sales. 
So that indicates that that extension of hours seems to be at least for now a net positive or at least not a net negative to margins. So a few positive things there for Walgreens, a retailer we're typically a little bit bearish on compared to their main competition in CVS. Now coming up after this break, again, we'll be joined by Whitney Livingston, president and COO of Centennial. We will discuss mixed use developments through the lens of the developer, what they mean for retailers, where the demand is coming from, and how you identify an appropriate redevelopment opportunity that can be successful for all parties involved. Also, how you work with the municipalities to make sure that they're happy with the results of the mixed-use redevelopment as well. BAMS! Are you accepting credit cards in your business? Of course you are. And if you're not and you're a retailer, then you definitely should be. But did you know that Stripe is not your only or best option for payment processing? Get paid well with BAMS. BAMS is a national payment solution provider with automated next-day deposits and major savings when compared directly to Stripe, PayPal, and Square. BAMS provides competitive pricing and deposits directly into your bank account in as little as 12 hours. Visit BAMS.com paywell for a limited time and get a $50 Visa gift card after completing your rate analysis to see how much you can save. Again, that's BAMS.com slash paywell, P-A-Y-W-E-L-L today to start saving. And as always, the link is in our show notes. We continue our interview series at ICSC. We're pleased to be joined by Whitney Livingston, the president and COO at Centennial. We're going to be talking about mixed-use redevelopments here today. First of all, Whitney, thank you for joining us. But I was wondering if you could give us a little bit of a background, a little bit of a detail as far as what Centennial does on the day-to-day. Sure, yeah. So Centennial was founded 25 years ago by our CEO, Stephen Levin. We are an owner, operator, and developer of mixed-use retail real estate projects. So we have about 15 million square feet nationally of retail and mixed-use assets, 200 employees, And again, we're based in Dallas, Texas, with regional offices in Orange County, Chicago, and Connecticut. So I think the first question a lot of people ask when it comes to mixed-use redevelopment or large-scale redevelopment is, what are some identifying factors that go into choosing the appropriate redevelopment, the appropriate community for that? So what are some factors that you look at or you and your partners look at as far as taking on a redevelopment project for an appropriate area? Sure. So location, location, location. So it certainly starts with the dirt and making sure that the project that we're buying, the land that we're buying is well located. I would say the second piece of it is the basis, making sure that we're buying the project at the appropriate cost that will ultimately allow for us to invest in the redevelopment. Redevelopments are not inexpensive, as you're probably very aware, rising construction costs. In addition to, they take a lot of time and a lot of resources. So making sure that you get in at a price that then allows you to continue to invest in the asset and ultimately execute on the redevelopment is critical. And then what type of white space are we seeing as far as demand for mixed-use development in the United States? So I would first start by saying at Centennial, We generally start our redevelopments with suburban malls. So we're looking in the top 25, top 40 MSAs nationally. And usually we're looking at malls because generally in those top markets, they occupy some of the best real estate with expansive parking lots. And 
at the end of the day, they're usually overbuilt, right? So getting a project that you can then right size where retail becomes the amenity that then ultimately complementary uses or other uses like multifamily, hotels, office, entertainment want to be adjacent to ultimately delivers the most dominant destinations. I'm kind of curious too, once you have a spot selected, you mentioned a lot of suburban malls are getting that attention. I would imagine too that sometimes you get people with that city in that suburb that are 100% on board. Sometimes you might get a little bit of pushback. There's zoning issues, of course. What's that dialogue like once you choose a redevelopment project with that city? Sure. So immediately our first step is going on a listening tour and really understanding what the community wants and needs. And that's everything from the consumer, that's from the existing tenants, and then that's also the key stakeholders within the city or the municipality. So first it's about understanding what they need or want and then combining that with our playbook or expertise relative to what we think will ultimately deliver the best destination. To your point, yes, there is sometimes pushback. I would say the pushback we've seen the most of is typically related to multifamily. And that stems from ensuring that the number of children that will be living in the multifamily residences and and their impact on the school system. Other than that, you know, we've been received very favorably in the municipalities where we have worked. And I think that's a, a big part of that is because we do go on that listening tour and we do really try to hear what's most important to that community and then deliver that in our execution. On a similar note, once a redevelopment project is undertaken, what are some considerations or factors that must be accounted for that might not meet the eye at first glance? Oh, good question. I mean, you know, first there's risk in execution, right? So making sure that you can get the entitlements, that you know what you're going into when you're buying this project and that it is a municipality that's going to be willing to partner with you. Another piece is, you know, public incentive dollars, making sure that you're confident that if you need that TIF for the project to ultimately pencil, that you can secure that. I think from there, there's always risk in ensuring that you can secure the tenants that are most important for the project. But I think really, if you have an operating platform like we do at Centennial with an in-house leasing development construction management team, you know, we can often overcome those things. At this point, I would say your relationships are are just as robust as anyone else in the industry. And if you look at your redevelopments, you can really see some of the proof there. I did want to ask you also about determining the mix within a mixed-use redevelopment. Because you mentioned you go in, you do that listening tour, you hear what people in that community think they want. But sometimes what people think they want and what they actually need can be a little bit different. When you start a project, how do you go about determining the appropriate mix of housing, retail, restaurants, and so forth? Sure, so demand studies are really important to us. So hiring a company to come in and do a demand study on you know, what's the current supply of multifamily, of hotels, office, industrial, so that we have facts So that when we are meeting with the municipality or key stakeholders and they have a want that we don't think ultimately should be delivered, we can use that as the foundation of explaining why we think the project needs X, Y, or Z that may be different from what they're interested in seeing. I would say one other thing, generally these large malls are significantly overbuilt. So at Centennial, we look at usually taking down between 40 and 60% of the existing retail GLA. And sometimes that can be met favorably, and sometimes that can be met with people that see that as concerning. If 
we believe that you can actually still deliver the same sales economy from a smaller, more productive amount of GLA than you would with a 1.4 million square foot mall that is likely underperforming. At what point in the process of mixed-use redevelopment do lease negotiations typically begin? Do you already have tenants on board when you begin a project, or is that something that comes along the way? It depends. We generally want to have a strong understanding of the anchor tenants, or what we would refer to as our bell cow tenants. So, you know, 40 years ago, mall anchors were department stores. Now anchors can be anything from securing the Lululemon space. So it's a 5,000, 6,000 square foot tenant, but they attract other tenants that want that co-tenancy. So I would say it's making sure you find the select few tenants that ultimately describe your vision for the project that then get other tenants more comfortable as you move forward. I'm also curious, too, because we've had a lot of discussions here at the show regarding walkability. And, of course, in these mixed-use developments, walkability is a big deal. But so, too, is the focus surrounding buy online, pick up in store, and, and needing to make sure that vehicles move through the mixed-use redevelopment in an efficient manner so that those retailers can pick up those buy online, pick up in store sales. So, kind of curious what goes into it as far as looking at movement, not only vehicle movement, but also human movement availability as well. Yeah, it's a great question. So I would say walkability is really important. We master plan all of our sites holistically. So we're a long-term holder. You know, when a Sears box becomes vacant, we aren't just focused on what to do with that parcel. Rather, we're looking at the entire project for a master plan that will be delivered over 20 years. So ensuring that we have the right access, both for walkability, for bikes, for vehicles is really, really important. And that's a big part of the foundation in the initial master planning process. If you could give us an example of maybe a project that was, obviously Centennial does a lot in terms of projects, but maybe a particular project that you saw a number of obstacles overcome, but you look at the final product and you're like, that's, that's fantastic. That defines what we do. Sure. I would say Hawthorne in Vernon Hills, Illinois. So it's in the North Shore suburb of Chicago. It was an incredible project at one time, but it was also built 45 years ago, and it was built for very different consumer needs at the time. When shopping malls were built 20 to 40 years ago, shopping was the entertainment. People would go to the mall, not necessarily just to buy a pair of jeans, but to hang out, and that was the place to be. Now, consumers are much more interested in experiences. And so when we purchased Hawthorne, it was a high-volume suburban mall. Ultimately, we saw two department stores go vacant that we were not planning on, and we saw a significant amount of national retailers exiting the center. So that in itself was a huge challenge at that project, but it really forced us to look again at the project holistically. And now we are under construction there with 350 multifamily units. We're about to start construction on 165 independent living residences. We're adding an open air component to the project. So we have a 50,000 square feet of high street retail and we're reducing the enclosed shopping mall 40%. So those challenges ultimately delivered what we think is the next generation of these centers and is really one of the first that's being redeveloped in the country. What's the process like when middle of a project you have two anchor tenants and a bunch of other tenants suddenly move out that maybe you weren't expecting? At what point do you say, okay, let's step back, let's retake that holistic view of what this shopping center could or should be? 
I wish I could say it was an easy process. It's a complicated process. These projects are very, very complex. And candidly, you know, pre-COVID, I would have told you they were complicated. Now I say they're, you know, complicated in all capital letters with a neon flashing light around them. But it's necessary to protect your investment. And so it's something that we work through and we believe we have one of the best playbooks in the country for how to execute on them. And then one final question for you. I always like to ask people what they see when they look ahead at the retail industry. So three to five year map. I don't need any company secrets or anything like that. I don't need any you know redevelopment works that are in the pipeline. But where do you see mixed use redevelopment going as you look at the U.S. as a whole? I think it's going to be an entirely new asset class that we've never seen before. And obviously, we've seen mixed use. We've seen retail at the base of multifamily, but we haven't seen it in the sense of the density that some of these sites are ultimately going to occupy. For example, in Orange County, we have a project where we've entitled it for 1,900 multifamily units, 750,000 square feet of office, 400 hotel keys another 100,000 square feet of retail that we won't ever build because it's already 1.4 million square feet. But when we deliver on that asset, that's like nothing our industry has seen before. And just like when lifestyle centers became a new asset class in retail real estate, I think these types of campuses will be the next chapter of our industry. All right. Well, fantastic. Once again, Whitney, thank you so much for joining the podcast and best of luck on all of Centennial's projects going forward. Thank you so much. As always, we may have a position in or against companies we discuss on the podcast. Do not invest in stocks solely on the input of the podcast hosts. We thank Whitney for joining us. She and the rest of the folks at Centennial were great to talk to, very engaging at ICSC as we continue our ICSC interview series on the show. And we're looking forward to next week's interview. We'll be joined by Matt Montgomery, who is the Managing Director of Calibrate. We'll talk a little bit about location analytics and how retailers are generating data now in 2022 and just how much it's changed over the last 20 years as far as location analytics are concerned. Well, we close out today's episode with looking ahead, by looking back, if you will, at the Mark Tritton era at Bed Bath & Beyond. If you've missed the news, Mark Tritton resigned this week concurrent with Bed Bath & Beyond's earnings call an earnings call where comms fell nearly 25% in their first quarter. Online sales fell 21% in the quarter. And so really you have to ask the question, where did this era that started in 2019 go wrong? Several different areas where you can direct blame, and I'm not sure that any one in particular was to blame, but a lot of people out there talk about it being a parallel with Ron Johnson's tenure at JCPenney, where he came over from Apple, cut back a lot of the discounting that JCPenney was offering, saying, hey, we're going to do everyday low prices instead to bring that value proposition to the consumer. Turns out consumers really liked those discounts. So eliminating or limiting those 20% off discounts that Bed Bath & Beyond was so well known for, that's maybe certainly one area that you can blame. Their pivot to private label products that really didn't carry a value proposition compared to similar items at General Merchandisers. That can be another one. Maybe it was the cleaning out of the C-suite when Triton took over that was primarily at fault. And I say cleaning out 
really just kind of replacing people with his own hires in there. Could have also been a perfect storm of the pandemic and supply chain issues hitting in the first year of their turnaround. Also, supply chain issues lingering for so long. Why did they linger for so long? Did that cause the failure there at Bed Bath & Beyond? Or was Triton doomed to fail after the chain had already moved out of high-traffic retail centers before he took over? Was he set up for failure, if you will? There's a Bed Bath & Beyond location near me that closed about five years ago in a super high-traffic shopping center, a shopping center that other than Bed Bath & Beyond has about 99% occupancy and is the major retail center where I live. So you look at all these factors, obviously, I think it's a dash of this, a dash of that. You don't make any good soup with just one ingredient, of course. And I think the failure soup, if you will, for Bed Bath & Beyond was probably made up of multiple of these. And I think also credit has to be given to Mark Tritton for decluttering stores and creating solid cash flow at the beginning of his tenure. But his tenure overall, and this is something that Leighton and I said even on the podcast a couple of months into his tenure, it had the feel of a lot of lip service, but not a lot of follow through by he and his team in terms of those initiatives. And they were initiatives that when planted, they grew, but never really bore fruit on the bottom line for Bed Bath & Beyond. And now we look back and have to wonder if world market, if that was really worth divesting, if that was maybe at the center of the woes. Throughout, also, you've got to give Bye Bye Baby credit because that continued to hold its own versus Bed Bath & Beyond sales. Regardless of anything, the reason it's in our Looking Ahead segment is we are looking ahead at the job ahead of interim CEO Sue Gove. She's got an operations and finance background, but she has her work definitely cut out for her this last quarter. Depending on who you ask, was underwhelming to terrible, anywhere in between, and she has a major job here at Bed Bath & Beyond to try and turn things around or at least set things up for potentially the permanent CEO. Of course, she could be considered for that role, but obviously they're going to be doing a long and hard search for an external hire as well. The nagging supply chain issues also have to be taken care of. So what are Sue Gove's next few moves, next few big moves as interim CEO? Is she simply just there to be a caretaker or is she going to affect big change as a result of the board giving her that power? So anxious to see what Bed Bath & Beyond is going to do now in a new era. Seems so quickly after the Triton era had just started, but that's the way things go in retail. Sometimes you get these big name hires coming in. Triton, of course, came in from Target and a lot of people said, hey, Bed Bath & Beyond isn't like Target. Those businesses run differently. Other people also said, you know, hey, this might be the end of an era as far as retailers that are specific to one category or another with general merchandisers, including the likes of Target playing so well in the same spaces. So time will tell how things go at Bed Bath & Beyond. I certainly don't think the entirety of the Triton era was an unmitigated disaster. There are certainly positive things that he did there, but obviously we'll never really know the full extent of his turnaround plan because a pandemic happened in the midst of it. And now two years on, he has basically stepped down or been relieved from his duties or pushed out the door. However, 
you want to classify it at Bed Bath & Beyond. Well, that'll do it for us this week. A big thanks to Leighton and McKenna for helping out behind the scenes. I'm Trent Kling saying so long until next week. And a big thanks to BAMS for sponsoring it. Once again, that's BAMS.com slash paywell. You can visit for your own personalized rate analysis. We'll be back approximately well, seven days from now. This has been the Retail Focus Podcast. For more, visit our website at retailfocuspodcast.com and subscribe on iTunes or Stitcher. Follow us on Twitter at Retail Podcast.